First Peter 4 That's where we're going to be. Good morning. Good to see you. Jason already said it, but I'll say it again. Thank you for singing with us today. What a, what a joy. The only problem with singing like that is I'm almost out of breath when I get up here. Such a gift. First Peter 4, we're going to be in verse 7. Here at Grace Community Church, we're working our way through the letter of First Peter. And in the past few weeks, we've been hearing the apostle Peter talk about suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering as Christians. The passage that we're going to consider today seems like it's a break into this discussion on suffering because it's giving us some instructions about the Christian congregation. This is actually the third time in 1 Peter that Peter broke in in the middle of a discussion to talk about the church. The first time was in chapter 2. He's talking about salvation, but then he breaks in and says, we're not only saved as individuals, we are saved as a people. We are the chosen people of God in the world. Second time was in chapter 3. <clears throat> he was talking about honorable living in the world. And then he breaks in once again and talks about the congregation because we need each other to help each other to live honorably in the world. Now, in the, in the third time he does this, and the text we're going to look at today, he addresses the congregation's life together in the context of suffering, and also he refers to the end of all things because he's telling us that we need each other to be able to suffer well all the way to the end. And so that is the theme that we're going to consider today. The church, in the end of time, in the last days, together suffering well for Christ. If you'll stand with me in honor of God's word, and we'll read our passage. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's good stewards, as, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, they say the best place to begin is at the beginning. But verse 7 tells us the beginning of this paragraph is really about the end. The end of all things is at hand. Maybe you saw or heard that in a movie. And it caused widespread panic. You might think that's what would have happened in the first century. The great apostle says the end of all things is at hand, and you might think that would cause people to sell it all, divest and disengage with all worldly things, rush to high ground. I don't know why it's always high ground, but rush to high ground and wait it out. But reading on here, we hear a much different message. The end of all things is at hand, therefore live well together. 
Now, we also might wonder if Peter got it wrong. He wrote this 2,000 years ago. The end of all things is at hand. 2,000 years ago, and we're still here. That's because Peter and Paul and the apostles and Jesus himself meant when they said at hand or near or soon, they meant next. Jesus said, the last words of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus said, surely I am coming soon. Well, Jesus didn't get it wrong either. He means next. And he doesn't even mean next week or next year, although that could happen. He means next on the agenda of God's saving plan. He means next, the next event will be the end, will be the return of Christ, which will actually be a new beginning of God's salvation work when the newness is complete, and there'll never be an end to that. Now, there's a lot of ways that we could communicate God's saving plan, and here's the one that we use often, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So God's saving plan, he created all, it was by grace, it was good, it brought him glory, fall, humans decided to exchange God's wisdom for their own, the fall, not the fall of the year, but the fall into sin. Redemption. God, always in his mind and immediately in history, begins to put in place that great redemptive plan. When you read the Old Testament and you get confused, just remember, it's God getting us to Christ. The redemptive plan comes to great fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. His incarnation, which means he became a man and lived among us. His perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his sending and gift of the Holy Spirit, creating a church, the church that knows him and preaches the gospel and lives unto his glory, making disciples of all nations now. And then there is next, consummation, the return. The return which will include the judgment. The return which will include the new and complete world of Christ's glory. The end, but also the beginning that will know no end. We don't know the time, but we do know the order. We don't know when it will happen. We know it will happen. It is next. Peter got it right when he said the end of all things is at hand, he meant the next thing to happen in God's redemptive plan is the end of history as we know it. Christ's return in the newness to come. Now, there are two reasons, I think, that Peter started this paragraph with this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Because, first, in verses 5 and 6, what we saw last week, he referred to the judgment. And he's trying to communicate that faith now matters for the judgment to come. He is calling people to faith now. 
He's saying that's next. And so on the agenda for our lives should be repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But another reason related to that is that if the end is next, then we are now living in the last days before the end. Again, people will ask me, do you think these are the last days? Usually they mean, do you think it'll be next week or next year when Christ returns? Well, the answer to the latter is, I don't know. But the answer to the real question, are these the last days, is yes. These are the last days. And since we are in the last days, and yet we're not told, we are not told to sell it all and to rush to high ground and to wait it out then we have to know how to live because that's what you do in the last days. You live. You live in the last days faithfully to Christ. And so that's what Peter is giving us here. The end of all things is at hand, verse 7, and then the next word, therefore. Therefore live this way. He's showing us how to live. In the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, There are many, many ways that tell us how to live in these days as Christians so that we will remain faithful to Christ. In fact, we could say that the entire New Testament is a last days document. Everybody thinks that the book of Revelation is a last days document. The whole New Testament is a last day document because it's calling us now in these days before the next thing, to come to faith in Christ. And it's telling us as the people of faith in Christ how we are to live faithfully to him and to witness to his grace. This paragraph is, is an obvious place that this is happening because it begins with the words, the end is at hand. This one is also clearly within the context of the congregation. He's telling us how to live in the context of suffering, and then he, in the context of suffering, he addresses the congregation. The one another context. The one another's of the paragraph I just read, I hope you heard them as I read through. The one another's of the paragraph that we just read requires togetherness, requires a place. These things require a congregation. What is a congregation? A congregation is a time and space located gathering of the church. That's what this is this morning. That's what's in this room right now. A time and space located gathering of the church. The congregation is the gathered, redeemed people by Christ. Redeemed by Christ, by grace, through faith identified as such by the profession of our faith. A congregation does functions that Christ commanded his church to do. We preach, we teach, we pray, we make disciples, we baptize, we observe the Lord's Supper, we care for one another. But what is that church? Peter's been talking about that throughout this letter. The redeemed. The church, not just in one location, but now all locations, all of God's people, the redeemed, the ransomed by Christ's blood, the people forgiven of their sins, actually purchased 
by Christ belonging to him, made the people of God for his own possession, shepherded by Christ, sojourning in the world, looking for the day. So the church, God's redeemed people, gathers into congregations. And Peter is telling us how to live in these last days. He's telling us what Jesus wants for his congregation. And isn't that the real question? What does Jesus want for his people? That is the real question. Jesus wants for his people, his church, the things that bring glory to God. Jesus wants for his church the things that show his grace to this world. Jesus wants for his church, the congregations, he wants the things that will help us as Christians, suffering if we are, we're in 1 Peter, it's about suffering, suffering, to remain in faith, hope and love until the end. This is what Jesus wants for his church. And Peter lays out four of them in this passage. Now there are many. We could go to almost any part of the New Testament and find what Jesus wants for the congregation. But we only have one paragraph and we only have a few minutes left. So four. In these days, he wants us to pray. In these days, he wants us to love. He wants us to show hospitality. And he wants us to steward the gifts that he has given us. Now, the first thing I'll say before I even get to number one is that is something that we can actually obey. It is not that complicated. It is sustainable and it is effective. That's what Jesus wants for his church. First, the end of all things is near, is at hand. Therefore, pray, verse 7. Now the command is actually to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. The great example is Jesus himself. The Gospels show us, as we read them, show us that Jesus was often slipping away from the crowd to pray. Why? Because the crowd had their minds somewhere other than on God, somewhere other than on God's will and God's kingdom and God's plans. And they were always pressing in on Jesus. And the gospels show us Jesus often pulling away from the crowd so he could go away and pray and seek God's will. Jesus was living sober-mindedly and self-controlled. I love Mark chapter one. It says that Jesus early in the morning before the sun came up, he arose, he departed, and he went out to an isolated, lonely place, and there he prayed. And I can't tell you how many mornings I wake up, and before my feet get out of the bed, I start quoting that verse, because I know I've got to get sober-minded. I've got, to, I've got to make some decisions. That's called self-control. I've got to make some decisions before the sun comes up. 
And before I answer the first email, I've got to get with Christ and get my mind ready and pray. We're just following Jesus. Hebrews 5 says that in the days of Jesus' flesh, he offered up prayers with supplications and loud cries and tears. You ever, you ever cried to God, like real tear crying out to God? Not the poetic, I cried to the Lord, but the real teary-eyed crying out prayer to God. Well, guess what? Jesus is with you. He did too. It says, Hebrews 5, he cried out with tears to God who was able to save him from death. And Jesus was heard because of his reverence, his sober-mindedness, his self-control, his reverence to the will of God. You say, he wasn't hurt, he died. He was raised. Jesus, self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of prayer. His prayers were for the glory of God and for us. So we, Christians, in a congregation like this, we are to think soberly. We are to be serious-minded, actively-minded about the truth and about the reality of sin and grace and judgment and salvation and holiness and godliness and suffering and joy and eternity and our calling. Our minds must be renewed and shaped and guided by the Word of God if we're going to be sober-minded. And it's all for the purpose of our prayers. Isn't that an interesting thing? Be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We have to know how to pray. We must be self-controlled and under the lordship of Jesus Christ and submitted to the Word of God and the Spirit we must decide, this is self-control, we must decide what we're going to do with our time and our physical energy and our emotional energy and our thought life so that we can pray. The point is that we're to think and do in ways that will enable us to pray effectively. So we have to ask ourselves, I, I, I have to ask myself, and I do ask myself, what mindset, what attitudes are going to prevent me from praying effectively? And I even ask myself, what conduct, what actions, activities are going to prevent me from praying effectively? And they might not even be what you would call sinful. They just might not be helpful to me. Or they might distract me, and I want to pray. Brothers and sisters, let's be jealous for prayer. Like, guard it. Have you ever been with a friend and, and someone interrupted you? You're out at a coffee shop with a friend and somebody pulled up a chair? And you're like, I don't want you here. I'm with my friend. You're jealous for the time. Let's be jealous. For our prayer life, our beseeching God, our fellowship with Him, so that we watch out for the mindset. Let's be sober-minded. We watch out for the conduct. Let's be self-controlled, jealous for our prayer life so that we reject the things and resist the things and repent of the things that harm us. And we have to ask ourselves, what mindset, what conduct will actually promote effective prayer? What can you do with your schedule that promotes effective prayer? 
Here's what I have to ask myself. What can I not do late at night so that the next morning I'll be able to get up early enough to pray? Now, this is not a sermon telling you what time you need to get up. Don't let the example become a rule, okay? I'm just asking you to think. That was just an example to say, just think. What are the good things that you could build into your life that would enable you at some point to enter into effective prayer? So let's learn to say yes and no for the sake of prayer. Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. To be, we need to be a praying people in our personal lives and a praying congregation because we want to be helpful. Because we want God to pour out His Spirit. Because we want revival. Because we want the people of our city to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because we want the people who are exhausted from chasing after their sins to know they can show up at a congregation like this and hear about Christ. We want this. And if we think that we can give this to people on our own, then we're wrong. God must pour out his spirit on vacation Bible school. If children are to be saved, if seed is to be sown, and so we're sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers. And when we suffer, when we suffer for Christ, and that's the context of 1 Peter, that's why I'm mentioning that. When we suffer for Christ, we need to be in prayer because we don't know how we're supposed to respond in every situation. We don't know what we're supposed to say to everyone who might look at us or say something to us because we're not on board with the latest policy at a workplace or a school place. We need prayer. We need the wisdom of God. We need to bathe ourselves with Christ. And so we're sober-minded and self-controlled. And it's beautiful, too. I can't, before I go to point two, I can't resist telling you, reminding us of how beautiful it is to know that when we are rising up, we're rising up with Christ. When we're going and kneeling, we're kneeling with Christ. When we're gathered and crying out with loud supplications and tears before God, we're doing it with Christ. It's beautiful to be with Christ. When you kneel at the foot of the cross, you turn your head, you see your brother and sister being washed like you. And when you kneel at the place in the altar of prayer, you turn your head and you see your brother Jesus right there with you. It's fellowship with Christ. And so we're sober-minded and self-controlled for these things. Second, love. In these last days to the suffering congregations, he says, love, verse 8, above all, that means make it a priority. Keep loving, it means you're doing it. So keep doing it. And I just want to say to you, I say the same thing. Let's keep loving. We're loving. I know you love. I hear how you're loving. I hear the reports. Now let's keep doing it. One another, he says. That's the congregation. It's a family love. It's a unique love. We love all people. We love every person created by God because every person is created in the image of God. And we love everyone. And still, there is a unique kind of love in the family of God and in the congregation. And so we're to, above all, keep loving one another. And we love each other earnestly, deeply, sacrificially in word and deed. Did not Jesus himself 
love those who were his in this world and love them to the very end. Yes. Why? Because, verse 8, love covers a multitude of sin. Jesus' love was cross-love. Jesus' love was cross-love. I hope you hear that every time you hear that Jesus loves you. Every time you sing it to a child, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And what does the Bible bear witness to? The cross of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it covered a multitude of our sins. And brothers and sisters, our sins are a multitude. They are a multitude. There's sin and then there's sins. There's sin that dwells in the human heart that is a part of our nature that rebels against God. It's been a part of us since Adam and Eve. And then there are sins and they are multitudes of just coming out. And they're all covered by the cross love of Christ. Atoned for, paid for, guilt removed, no condemnation. Write it over your door, write it on your heart, write it in your mind. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit now convert someone. And our love, our love for each other covers a multitude of our sins against each other. If you've never had the experience of forgiving someone and then still being their friend, you're missing out on a great thing. If you've never really been hurt, sinned against, not just slighted, but sinned against, and then forgiven out of love, out of knowing that Christ in his love forgave you, and now you, in love, are forgiving them. And then you actually remain friends. That is Christ. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's a beautiful experience. Brothers and sisters, Christ has forgiven us. Now let's love. Let's guard our hearts against anger and guard our hearts against hatred. Let's guard our hearts against suspicion and contempt. Let's, brothers and sisters, guard your heart against a false perception of your brother and sister that's not rooted in something that's true. Guard yourself against that. And grudge-bearing, and partiality, guard yourself against both active and passive ways of violating love. And then, love each other. Let's go love. Let's be active, let's be earnest in loving. Now, when this happens, that is sober-mindedness and self-control and will promote effective prayer, and that We'll build a healthy and helpful congregation for suffering Christians and struggling Christians. That will be a witness of God's grace to people who don't know Christ. That will honor Christ. When you go home this week, don't just close it up. When you go home this week, take it. 
take this with you and say, okay, Lord, I put myself before you. And if you've got some work to do in me to bring me to a place of repentance and faith and obedience about loving the congregation, then help me. Third, show hospitality, verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Open your hearts, open your homes, open your lives to one another in ways that are welcoming to people, in ways that meet needs, in ways that encourage. Now, in Peter's day, history tells us it was dangerous to travel. And so Christians were very, very quick to say, don't stay in an inn or a hostel, come stay at our house. But also, dangers from persecution meant people had to travel. And so hospitality was very, very important, and it still is, for numerous reasons. We need to be opening our minds, our homes, our hearts, our arms to each other so we can help each other in these days, these last days, the end of all things is near. Jesus had such a welcoming spirit. Jesus left his home. Jesus became poor for our sake. Jesus left his home, became poor for our sake, that he could secure for us a home. Jesus has secured a home for us with the Heavenly Father and with him. Jesus will welcome his people home. Jesus was a very hospitable person. He said, come. Come and be welcomed. Jesus never closes the door on a repentant sinner who trusts Christ. The door is always open. So how? In our context, as an extension of our love, how can we practice hospitality as we're being called to here? What are the needs? Think with me. What are the needs of your brothers and sisters that, that you, by opening your life, your schedule, your home, can meet? Meeting that need in a way that will help them remain faithful to Christ. Now, I, I'm going to say this. Take it in the right spirit. That does not mean to, for us to organize another program. We cannot organize a big enough program to be hospitable to everybody. We, as Christians, are the ones that have the opportunity to open our hearts our homes, our lives to each other as the needs are known so that we can help each other move forward with Christ. That's hospitality. Let's do that. Four, be good stewards of God's gifts. Verses 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you're using it to speak, speak the oracles of God. If you're using it to serve, serve in God's strength because doing it this way will mean glory to God through Jesus Christ to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Grace received is to be grace given. This is a principle of the Christian life that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can think about and apply to your life. Grace received, what you have received, 
is given to you by God so that you can give it in some form of service. That's what a steward does. If you've ever stewarded something, you've been given something that didn't belong to you at first. It now belongs to you. It's in your possession now, but it belongs to somebody else, and they gave it to you, and they said, do good with that. Do what I want you to do with that. Invest it how I want it invested or give it how I want it given, but you do, you do with what I give you what I say, okay? And what does God say? He says, I give you grace. I'm giving you gifts. Grace and gifts are connected here. The gift is some kind of capability for service. It's it's an ability, but it's also a resource, and it's also an opportunity. And you put all that together, you now have a gift. And it's a gift from God. That's why it's grace. It's varied grace, he says. Varied grace, and that means there are a variety of gifts or a variety of capabilities, ways to serve one another. And each one of us has at least one. And therefore, each one of us is to serve. Now, note a few things, that the gift is not some unique talent. How many times have you said or heard somebody say, I'm just not talented. I just don't really have a special, unique talent. Well, okay, you might not. But that's not what this is talking about. The gift here is a capability. You've got some ability to say, I don't have a, a talent. You're talking. You have the ability to speak. You have some resource. You have some opportunity. And so you use that. It could be a very, very ordinary thing. Do not underestimate the power of an ordinary, an ordinary act of service. A hello. I'm praying for you. May I help you? Can I give you a ride? Don't underestimate the power of this. These are gifts that God has given us. Note also that there's, he's not talking about offices in the church. There are places in the New Testament that talk about the offices of the church. Here, he says each one of you, every Christian is gifted to serve. The service, the stewardship is this. It is the natural outworking of the grace of God that is at work in our lives to serve people around us and in a congregation that's all it is and Peter doesn't list the gifts there are many many lists lists of gifts in the New Testament Peter doesn't do that he just talks about doing two things because his emphasis is not on what the gift is his emphasis is on being a good steward and so he says two things if you're talking if you're speaking so if you're if you're going to serve you need to speak what God wants you to speak and all kinds of opportunities this morning, it might be in the gathering hall. It might have been in a Sunday school class. It might be in the parking lot. But you're going to talk to somebody, hopefully. It could be a conversation you're going to have this week. It could be in an organized setting. You might go to a group this week, and there's a topic on the table, and you're going to talk in the group this week. It could be teaching a class. It could be what I'm doing right now. But here's the, here's the point. God gave us this as a gift. It's a grace. And when we open our mouths to speak, we're supposed to speak the things of God, his words, his wisdom, his ways. It doesn't mean you can't ask how your week was. It doesn't mean you can't say the coffee's good. You can talk about those things. But God has put us in an environment as a congregation to where we are using the words of God to build each other up. We're stewarding our words. It could be serving, and he mentions that here, and we've already talked about that. 
any ability that we have to bring goodness and grace and help to people to move on toward Christ. We do it with prayer, reliance upon God in faith, His glory, all of this to strengthen us. We're stewarding well. So congregation, when we steward the grace of God well, when we pray, when we love, when we show hospitality, we're doing such more, so much more than just being a nice congregation. We are being the people of God gathered that becomes a helpful place, bringing glory to God, strengthening Christians, doing the gospel evangelism work that we're called to do because the end of all things is at hand. And next is the return. And until then, people are to be brought to Christ and built up in Christ. So think on these things this week.